Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM across town. I'm Emily Trenum, the host. Today, we're going to be talking about aging in place, and that's really strategies to help older adults stay in their homes and really stay in their houses at the latter part of their lives. And my guest today is Kristen Reeder, who's the Senior Research and Evaluation Manager at Habitat for Humanity of Greater Memphis. And Habitat's done some amazing work in this area, and Kristen's going to talk about that um, and then also talk about some research she conducted actually evaluating the impact of the program. So welcome to Memphis Metropolis. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, I think of Habitat for Humanity as one of those organizations that everyone has heard of pretty much, and especially compared to other affordable housing or community development organizations that don't have the benefit of a sort of a global brand. But all the chapters are different, uh, you know, depending on local need and local leadership. So just give us a little bit of a nutshell and pretend if you, if we can imagine this, the pandemic doesn't exist because I know um, that's probably shifted some of what you do, but in, in generally speaking, talk about what some of the programs are, especially other than the aging in place program, which we're going to do a deep dive into. So what does Habitat and the Memphis do? Yeah, sure. So like you said, Memphis does have a global uh, brand. And the thing is, is that most folks kind of believe all the same myth, no matter where we are on any continent. And that's what we give away homes. Um, right. But we we prepare first-time home buyers through uh, first-time mortgages. Um, and it's, it's a significant way to encourage wealth development from one generation to another. But for Memphis Habitat, we've built about 570 homes since 1983 for first-time mortgage holders and their families. And I joined in 2009 as an applied anthropologist. Uh, Believe me, the construction guys had a great time uh, with that. They're like, what is that and why do we need this person? I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, my job was to really look at social determinants of health. And, and how affordable homeownership really just impacts the human experience, like physical health and mental health. And like I said, wealth development, um, childhood achievements, re- reducing racial disparities and things like that. Well, and you know better than anybody that um, in the time you've been at Habitat, the, the demand on nonprofits to measure their impact sometimes at a very granular level has really increased. And so organizations need someone like you to actually, you know, talk about, you know, dollars and cents or, you know, lifetime, you know, life extension 
um, lifespan ex- extension and things like that because because fund you know limited dollars for to support the work. Um, being able to measure things is gotten really important. So, Christy, um, before we before we leave, sort of habitat generally, um, and I don't want to digress too much, but one of the I think habitat again, people think about it as uh, affordable housing, and that's a lot of what you do. But over the last ten years or so, Habitat in Memphis has done a lot of sort of neighborhood development. You've sort of gotten into you know, green space and public art. So without spending too much time, just go into that a little bit. I'm thinking about your work in the uptown neighborhood, sort of north of downtown, and you may have done in other areas, but those are things that you don't think of traditionally that Habitat for Humanity does, but that's really also really neat. Yeah, my my favorite shift, other than the one that we're shifting to with older adults, has been around neighborhood revitalization. And as an anthropologist and as a person who's working in this community, I know that um, we can't operate in a silo and that it takes, you know, people like you um, establishing communication among the CDCs and working with neighborhood associations to really look at what does it take to provide community development products that kind of collectively uh, improve the well-being for folks. So we worked with Urban Art Commission on uh, three different murals that included uh, business facades uh, in Uptown. That was super cool. That was my first rodeo measuring uh, public art impact. And I think I remember interviewing you going, uh, yes, what you think. Yeah. Um, And of course, neighborhood revitalization focuses on working in terms of blocks and streets and multiple houses that we're building and repairing. You know, the days of infill building are kind of behind all of us working in housing. And then we've done lots of really cool cleanups with uh, banks, uh, City Beautiful, Clean Memphis, neighborhood associations, Greek Life, uh, large-scale corporations like FedEx, Service Master. And then we were doing historical and business repairs, which I thought was really significant. Um, I think that a lot of habitats should be called to um, spaces like the Chamber and Better Business and kind of offer these opportunities because there's a lot of incredible historical spaces. Um, and of course, one of my favorite things was that uh, President Jimmy and Mrs. Rosalind Carter came uh, and worked, you know, in North Memphis in 2015. And that was really, really cool. I love it that you've done that work because it really is, uh, You, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you just can't do affordable housing, whether it's new or rehab or home repair in a vacuum. There's so many other things that affect quality of life. And I'm so I'm glad to see you, you, you've gotten into the neighborhood revitalization business, as it were. So let's um, talk about um, the aging in place. And I want to have a couple questions about sort of before we talk about your program. Have a, a little question, a couple questions about sort of the you know the need and the opportunity. And you know when people get older, um, you know people. People frequently, they get elderly. Sometimes they move in with families. Sometimes they move into a retirement home or assisted living, a nursing home if they're not that, you know, some kind of a congregate living facility. But a lot of older adults want to stay in their own homes. And, you know, in Memphis, you know, a a lot of these homes are just, you know, they're not in good condition. It's possible that the family 
you know, the woman or man, their spouse bought the house where maybe were the first time homeowners in Orange Mound or North Memphis or, you know, it's a lot of neighborhoods, but they want to stay there. Maybe they have some support from family, but these are folks that are, you know, primarily low or low and moderate income. Um, and, and so talk a little bit about, I guess, the, you know, the, the physical structure of the houses, these older houses. I mean, what happens? What are the problems that they encounter as the house gets older? And, um, but they're still living there and trying to live there. Yeah. So if we're lucky, we get to grow old. And then if we're really lucky, we grow old in a home that we that we own. And if we're extra, extra lucky, we grow old with that home. And so it's about really having this healthy symbiotic aging relationship with your home, which is specific to each family. Uh, and we can look at aggregate need, you know, that most folks will need some type of accessibility modification as they age. But, you know, as we're getting so we'll, wheelchair, wheelchair ramps or grab bars, something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes that's all it takes to keep a person in their home. Uh, and that's, you know, a, a very you know, fee economically feasible intervention for most housing agencies, you know, not, it doesn't take a, a big habitat, it, it can be something that we can implement on a very small scale. And, you know, as humans age, their ability to function changes, their activities of daily living changes, uh, toileting, hygiene, and sometimes, you know, these types of things that are happening to our bodies in conjunction with, uh, critical repair needs like a sagging roof, significant leaks, uh, broken windows, broken doors, that can really send you on a scary trajectory. And when that happens, you're left with options such as emergency department, hospital, um, isolation, uh, rehabilitation, or uh, the worst of the worst is going into an early nursing home, which nobody wants. So I want to talk about some of the there's a lot of impacts of um, of these housing conditions or the lack of access. There's a lot of impacts on seniors, but um, I guess for the most part, these, and, and I'm probably pointing out the obvious, but I guess most of these elders can't afford to make the repairs that they need or and, and aren't in a position to you know, take out a bank loan or, I mean, replacing your roof is expensive for anybody. And, mm -hmm. um, those, those are just, but I'm, but I'm guessing that's the situation is that people need repairs and they don't have the financial wherewithal to do it. Is that right? Yes, correct. So, um, by 2038, about a third of all households in the U S will be headed by someone 65 and older. Um, and when people and gerontologists and, uh, folks who research social determinative health, that age group between 55 and 64 is about when things start to change trajectory into being a, a O land where we go, all right, we need to talk about grab bars, you know, and, and things to help us keep us in the home. Um, so the, the age of in the face of America in terms of aging is about to change completely. And the age group that is about to be the fastest growing age group will be individuals over 80. So I know that you know what that demographic will mean for uh, adult caregivers, housing, transportation, hospitals, CDCs, managed care organizations, like especially with the pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, and to kind of tap in further into your question about one in five older Memphians live in poverty. And based on a study commissioned by the Plow Foundation, who funded us for a 3.9 million citywide uh, critical home repair and accessibility modification program, um, we have about 8,000 folks 
who have stated that they need accessibility mods and, and repairs. And I work closely with the geospatial uh, analysts to kind of look at aggregated secondary data so we can see what in the world is going on. And the thing is, is that we don't know what's going inside uh, going on inside someone's home unless they right. tell us. So that's why the qualitative stuff is so important. Um, about two thirds of Memphis housing stock was built before 1980. That's pretty gnarly. Uh, Shelby County has about 25,000 homes built before 1940. So whether an individual is going to be experiencing um, a cost burden, which they likely will, um, because that's just how so so so, so so it so define that what a cost burden is. So a cost burden uh, with the way that Habitat looks at it and the way that HUD has looked at it is that uh, it's a percentage of your income that is going towards housing cost. And what we try to do is keep it around 30%. You don't want 30% of your income going uh, above, you know, for your housing costs. And that can include utilities too. And lots and lots and lots of seniors are paying super high utility costs because their home um, is not energy efficient or it has really significant repair issues. Well, and probably a lot of them are relying 100% on Social Security. So yeah. you it's would about $1,000 a month per per client. You couldn't you couldn't um, get much for 30%. So so what we, we I guess what we say is that if you pay more than what's considered to be the appropriate amount, you're cost burdened if you're mm-hmm. spending more than around 30%. Okay. So let's I want to talk about you know, there's a lot of different impacts of these, um, and you've alluded to some of them, the impacts from these, um, you know, the poor condition of housing or the the um, the lack of accessibility. Um, but I want to, I do want to ring my bell <laughs> because um, because I want you mentioned social determinants of health. I think this is a good. Uh, transition to you answering my question. You talked about a social determinants of health, and I'm familiar with that term, but can you just briefly explain what that is? Because um, I think it's relevant to, to this. Yeah. So um, the simplest definition is where you live, where you work, and where you play. Um, it can include the house that you live in. It can include the neighborhood that you live in. And then for me, uh, aging in place isn't just about the house, but it's also about the community. So are there you know, zero steps to the community center where a person might go for you know, senior day or to go hang out with other um, older adults in the neighborhood who are also retired? Um, you know, is the home that you're living in um, have plumbing and electrical hazards? Does it have damaged windows or doors? Um, what's the entry like? Are you having respiratory issues as a result of mold or mildew? Are there pests like roaches and rats? And, and then also, what's the psychological disruptions in your life um, that these things you know, are causing? And a lot of the, the seniors that I speak with and a lot of the research that I've done with AARP talk about the importance of socialization for older adults. And um, if they have the the networks, in most cases, there's significant social capital in neighborhoods, but they're so embarrassed about their home that they don't want to invite folks in or they don't want them to get sick or fall. And so, um, you know, I, I talked with a client a couple of weeks ago and she said, I've had my pastor come back in and have Sunday tea with me um, after not you know, enjoying that time with them for almost a full year, not just because of the pandemic, but because her house was um, in really rough shape and it wasn't safe for him. And that's what she was thinking about, that it was you know, not safe for him. I was like, well, what about you? 
So it made a huge difference for for her well-being. So these housing issues, I guess what you're saying is they have they there's a, a variety of physical impacts, you know, on the health, um, psychological, um, you know, sense of well-being. And I guess that probably, and we're going to talk about your, you know, your findings of your research in a minute, but I, I'm guessing that contributes to, you know, lifespan. Yes, it can. And the thing is, um, you know, I, I can't do all the medical data that I want to do because I don't have access to HIPAA protected data. You know, honestly, I shouldn't. So I work very closely with the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative. I work very closely with uh, UT. They have a preventative medicine evaluation group. Um, and so they help me sort of collect these more statistical medical measurements, um, as well as insurance claims data post-intervention. Okay. And so that really helps me kind of take a look at what their trajectories would be like. Um, and so it's it's significant, especially around the accessibility modifications, like high risk fall areas like porches, bathrooms, um, just putting in a grab bar or a handrail can make a huge difference. I'm um, sure. Yeah. Or and also people can't don't feel safe going outside. I mean, right? they might feel safe going out to their porch for some fresh air if, right. um, if there's nothing to grab onto. I mean, there's those little things that just, I mean, I'm, again, I'm preaching to the choir. It's like these little things that contributes so much to quality of life, tea with your pastor, you know, getting some fresh air on your porch that, um, you know, just contribute, again, contribute to someone's quality of life or lack thereof. Yeah. And if you're um, afraid of falling in the bathroom and you don't have any kind of recourse to modify it, then you're going to avoid it. And what we found um, in initial interviews, and I've done about 1,200 surveys with, with older adults, about 85% of clients were not cleaning their bodies or toileting properly because they were afraid that they were going to fall and nobody would find them. And so, um, you know, this is an immediate outcome. This is an immediate impact that I'm sharing with members of Congress when I go to D.C. and Nashville. I'm sharing with legislatures who are developing, you know, policy based on research or um, insurance companies here recently talking with managed care organizations um, and insurance companies who are saying, hey, we want to invest in this kind of work because we know it's going to have a huge effect. And one of our clients, uh, she shared, she said, I've been falling off my porch over and over again before the ramp was repaired. Handrails made a huge difference for me, and I hadn't thought to ask for help. I hate asking for help. When you get older, you have to ask for help to stay safety, to stay safe and healthy. That's just how it goes. Um, my family feels so much safer for me now. They live in other cities and trust that I can stay in my home and also be safe. Uh, the tiniest improvement has made a huge difference in the house. Well, yeah, we haven't even talked about, I mean, the worrying of, I mean, I'm sh- I can relate to that personally, you know, worrying about your parents falling. And so before we go on, um, I just want to reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking about the Aging in Place Home Repair Program for Seniors with Chris Reeder of Habitat for Humanity. So let's, this is a great, um, this is a great time to sort of transition to how Habitat has been working to address this issue. So what is the, you know, the big A, big P, what is the aging in place program at Habitat? What's that all about? So about 2011, we saw the need 
um, to start serving lower income homeowners um, who were around 60 and above, um, that we could make significant impacts in their life by uh, doing a roof for, you know, uh, $13,000. And we can do that in one day and we can work with local contractors who are respectful and, and trained um, culturally to provide appropriate customer service for, for seniors. Um, and here recently, we have uh, partnered on a small 75-person pilot called CAPABLE, uh, which stands for Community Aging in Place, Advancing Better Living for Elders. That's a big one. It is. <laughs> I, yeah, I defined it before gonna... you got to the bell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but that was funded by Weinberg, and it's part of our broader service. And it combines the service of an uh, occupational therapist, a nurse, and then, of course, we're the construction piece. Um, and it helps individuals perform activities of daily living so they can stay in their home and that adult caretakers um, can either do a better job of helping them or have that space where their, you know, older loved one can remain independent. And this work is based out of Johns Hopkins University, and it was designed heavily by nursing perspectives. Um, and like I said, Methodist is providing the OT and nurse support, and then Green and Healthy Homes, they're doing the actuarial insurance and metal claims data, which is cool because I can take my qualitative research for which I've, um, you know, been working for years on and developed a theory of change around. Um, and I can say, here's this incredible aggregated data. It's kind of stuffy. It's kind of statistical. It's kind of hard. Um, but these are the stories that go along with it. And Memphis is very unique and deserves to have their stories told. So this is sort of a, a, a an enhancement to aging in place that combines the home repair with these other, I don't know if, if you call them wraparound services, but occupational therapy and that kind of thing. Correct. So uh, if I go into Mrs. Jones' home and they say, uh, including her family, and they say, you know, it would be great if we had a ramp for her. We can build the ramp. We can do that. But what might she need to get up and down that ramp safely? She may need to work with an occupational therapist to develop her muscles, um, to just kind of have a, a more personalized relationship with that. And so that's not something that Habitat can do, but we can certainly build it. And we can certainly work with these fantastic uh, medical professionals who understand the concept of allied health um, and really kind of the, the impact that can have on, on healthcare spending. It's sort of like, um, you know, buying someone a tool, but not teaching them how to use it. I mean, yeah. that's, or, or, I mean, maybe that's not a great analogy, but that's a, actually a great point. Someone needs a ramp, but they don't really feel comfortable. They're still unsteady on their feet. Mm -hmm. um, they never really learned how to use a cane properly and right. they're not completely comfortable. So, so you're really leveraging your investment to get even more impact. Well, that's great. But you all, you still have the sort of the meat and potatoes aging in place program, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and we have a, a $13 million grant that we implemented across the state of Tennessee called Senior Trust. And everything that we learned, um, all the evaluation tools, we taught other habitats in about a dozen different counties to do this work so that we were reaching respective uh, cities, um, especially rural areas. And rural areas have come up um, in pandemic conversations over and over again. Uh, and of course, the ability to socially distance is, is heavily connected to having a safe home. You, you should see the data that I've found in the last year and a half about COVID. Um, so we're sharing what we're learning with groups like us, but we're also sharing this data out in places. 
And I, I truly believe in the power of democratizing access to research. I don't think it should cost anything. If anyone anywhere calls me and asks for survey tools, um, you know, how to apply for an institutional re review board application, I'm there because it's this kind of work that has to be shared if we're all going to be successful. Well, and I'm guessing that, you know, rural areas probably don't get the same attention from funders and probably the habitat chapters are covering a much bigger geography. So I'm sure there was, you know, you have innovations, you've already designed the program, which could work in a rural area. So what kind of, I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, wheelchair ramps, grab bars. I mean, are those the most, what's the process? Do you go into a house and then do an evaluation? And then what are the kind of, what's the typical process for someone to, you know, get help from Habitat? Um, you know, so what we found is that the need uh, is, is pretty broad. And the thing is that uh, all of America is aging, um, but we're not necessarily aging geographically the same. So it's really important for me when I do this work to focus on what's going on in Memphis. And, you know, when we open up the lines for individuals to call in, provide their information so that we can start to collect clients, they shut our lines down because that's how great the need is. Um, I like bet. I said, it's, it's really difficult. I wish we had all the money in the world, you know, all of us housing agencies so that we could do this work, you know, all of us, all the CDCs, United Housing, all of us, but there's just such a great need. And, um, you know, once we're able to qualify individuals, it's individuals over 60 um, who live in Memphis and Shelby County, they, they never pay a penny toward their repairs or modifications. And we have construction folks who, again, are trained um, through capable and trade through aging in place to recognize the type of repairs that are going to keep them in their home. And that can be a critical home repair like a roof, or it could be um, accessibility lighting. Because if you're trying to prepare food in your kitchen and your eyesight is starting to um, kind of lose its acuity. Um, I just took my mom for her uh, cataract surgery not too long ago, and she just said that overnight the difference was miraculous. But, you know, if, if an older adult is in their kitchen and they're trying to cook food or prepare, if they can't see properly because they have bad lighting or uh, no lighting at all because they're electrical, wow. they're going to cut their hand. And that's going to be an insurance claim. That's going to be an emergency department visit. That's going to be something that upsets their life. Um, that could be something that affects their independence. Uh, also getting, you know, chemical burns or burns on the stove. If you can't see, you can't function. So, you know, lighting with as simple as it is. Um, we also do a lot of faucet changes. So a regular knob that's sort of circular that you turn can be really hard uh, for a person who has arthritis in their hands. So we do a lot of handle lever shaped uh faucet changes. And, and it makes a huge difference for folks who um, they want to stay cooking on Sunday. They want to, uh, you know, make food for the community. They want to enjoy developing kind of nutritious food. Um, and so something as simple as, as lighting can help that. Well, that's a great example because you do think of these roof repairs as being expensive, which they are. But a lot of things you're talking about are not expensive. I mean, you could improve the lighting in someone's kitchen for, you know, a couple hundred dollars if that, and same thing with a new faucet and, and, you know, really increase their quality of life and increase. And, and you touched on something else that I wanted to sort of lift up. We talked about the, um, you know, the different impacts on the individual um, when they, the house is substandard or they don't have the accessibility they need, you know, the health, the emotional health, all of that. But these are, um, 
you're this is you're saving money. This is the, these are things that are, you know, there's a, a relatively small investment. And like you said, it saves emergency room visits. It saves doctors. I don't think people always realize some of these programs that seem really expensive. They save a lot of money down the line um, that the you know taxpayers or philanthropy. So it's really worth. I mean, if someone, if a person falls down and breaks their hip, that's going to be expensive. You know, hospital rehab, if you can put a wheelchair ramp and prevent that, I mean, I realize I'm up on a soapbox now, but I want just people, like I said, not just the the impact on the the individual, it's really a societal benefit from from a financial perspective, among other things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll totally join you on your soapbox because it's it's important. And this is, you know, affecting the trajectory of how housing agencies are going to respond to this demographic housing tide. Uh, but, you know, when I do measurements, I look at the individual, I look at their families and communities, and then I look at the city of Memphis. So I work really closely with an economist who helps me kind of quantify this stuff because it's tough. Um you know, about uh, each year, about $50 billion is spent in the United States on medical costs related to non-fatal fall injuries for seniors. And that's, um, and if it kills you, that's about $754 million that, you know, Medicare is paying. In Tennessee alone, it's $885 million. Wow. Like I said, that's that's Medicare and Medicaid dollars. Now, when you have a, a roof that is leaking, when you have windows that are in really bad shape, um, if you have heating and air options that are inoperable or not working properly, that's going to cause your utilities to be super high. And if you are a lower income individual, again, aging adults are on um, sort of very limited fixed incomes anyway, you're going to end up spending a whole bunch of money on your utilities. And what we found is that over 70% of the clients were so um, fixated on making sure that their utilities were paid understandably, that they were having to sacrifice food, medication, transportation. So with certain types of critical home repairs, we can save an individual about 120 to $720 um, dollars a year. And that's significant for a person living on a thousand dollars a month. Um, that is. Yeah. And so cumulatively over time with all the folks that we've been able to serve, that's about 0.8 million of utility savings just for that population of folks that we've saved. Now, if we can extend that to other individuals and keep that momentum going, that would be wonderful. Well, so Chris, one of the reasons I invited you on the show is I saw online you shared some research that you had published looking at, um, you know, some of the impacts of the Aging in Place program. And I know you've talked about some of those, but are there any, are there any um, anything in that research study, any impacts that we haven't talked about that you wanted to, just as we're wrapping up, that you wanted to report on that uh, listeners might be interested in? Well, we do find that about a third of the clients who did report having a breathing condition said that their respiratory health had improved. Now, the remaining two thirds said, you know, my breathing has stayed the same. Nobody's got worse. So we count that as like a very significant um, impact because uh, respiratory issues uh, arriving in the emergency department is a very large cost for uh, managed care organizations. Also, if you can't control the temperature in your home because it's really, really hot or really, really cold, it can cause cognitive issues. Um, and that affects your quality of life. And that's going to impact the healthcare costs and things like that. Um, I, I love to be able to talk about how, um, you know, we have really high ratings around customer service and client satisfaction and sense of pride and socialization and that they even feel safer, the folks coming back into their home. 
Um, and, you know, after working at Cabana, I'm kind of brainwashed into talking about, you know, community. It's university, university of Memphis. Yeah. So you, I almost had to ring the bell on that one. I so did. That was, um, university of Memphis Center for Community Building and Neighborhood Action. Which is where um, we met, I think. Yes. Yes. I was doing Problem Properties Collaborative and talked about blight all day long. Um, but if if every older adult we were we help otherwise fell or required hospital stays or rehabilitation, or they went into a nursing home. That's a mass exodus of individuals leaving vacant homes and otherwise stable communities. And that's a huge cost for fire departments, CDCs, and then just the folks that you know live there. Um, and the, the biggest question I get from policymakers and, and funders is, well, how do you know that your program is keeping folks in their home? And that, the answer is complex because humans are um, complex and we have a lot of dials and the only dial that I can really analyze is housing. And so what I'm finding is that each year about 25 aging in place clients tell me that if it hadn't been for AIP, they would have been dusted for a nursing home within a year. So if your listeners don't know, a semi-private nursing home room is $87,000 a year. A private one is $92,000 a year. So the cost for 25 AIP clients to go into just a semi-private nursing home uh, room is $2.2 million, and that is all tax-funded Medicare and Medicaid costs. And so that's a, that's a huge pitch that I share. Um, you know, we've been able to um, affect, hopefully, cumulative neighborhood impacts as well. And we were able to divert about $18 million in neighborhood costs, right? So if all the folks that we served all of a sudden had to go into some type of medical care, um, what's the what does it look for foreclosures, code enforcement, fire, arson, blight, appreciation values? And the multiplier effects of one vacant, blighted, Magnet for arson and dumping house has a negative effect of 2.2 property reduction. Um, and that's about a 500 foot radius. So that's like 27 homes. So what we're looking at is probably, you know, significant trends in communities where we can really make a difference for, for not just the individual, but help communities truly age in place. Well, based on what's going on in the real estate market as well, it's very unlikely Unless a family member moves in, which does happen, it's very unlikely that if the senior has to go into a nursing home, that that's going to remain a home ownership unit. A lot of times, you know, we've had this huge wave of out-of-town investors coming into Memphis, buying up property, and probably wouldn't, a very good chance it wouldn't stay in local ownership of any kind, whether it's oh, yeah. a homeowner or whether it's a local owner who rents it out. So that uh, in and of itself is significant. Oh, yeah. And and again, you know, 98% of the aging in place clients say that they are toileting better because they don't have to fall up and down on a toilet that's too low for them. All of the toilets we provide are ADA compliant. Um, they're not afraid of falling anymore. Um, the article that was published um, that you saw on LinkedIn um, was about this incredible grandmother who raised her grandkids. And um, she just needed some critical home repairs like because her roof was leaking. And every time it rained, it kind of rained inside the house. And so over time, she and her grandkids were developing really serious respiratory issues. And those respiratory issues were keeping the kids up at night. So they were falling asleep during the day and their grades are failing. And they were these were good students, right? So we were able to provide this critical home repair, this roof, and it made an immediate difference. And she wasn't missing school. And the grandmother wasn't missing work because she was staying home with um, 
her granddaughter. And so I talked to them about three weeks ago and her granddaughter is on the Dean's list majoring in accounting. And it's, it's a a powerful um, kind of correlation about what are the trajectories of not just this older generation, but the trajectories of the grands that are living in their home. Um, And it's not just one family, it's, it's several. Well, and a lot of uh, Memphis seniors are caring for grandchildren in their homes. I mean, that's a whole separate topic. I mean, we talked a little bit about, like you said, the the asthma and then the psychological, emotional. I mean, who wants to live in a house where the roof is leaking and it's moldy and there's insects? You're not going to feel good. You're not going to feel clean personally if you're yeah. a teen. I can't even, where you know, peer pressure is so important and, oh, yeah. and grooming. And I can't even imagine that um, there'd be a whole separate set of impacts from family members living with the seniors in addition to the impact on the seniors. Well, it's a big subject. And, uh, but Chris, thank you so much for coming on. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Kristen Reeder from Habitat for Humanity of Memphis. We've been talking about their, the issue of um, home condition and accessibility for seniors who are aging in their homes and a, a great aging in place program that Habitat has had for several years. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having Habitat. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome to the second half of Memphis Metropolis. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM, and I've got regular commentator Austin Harrison here. Austin is visiting professor at Rhodes College in Urban Studies and is also getting his PhD at Georgia Tech, which will be any day now. And we're <laughs> going to do a special little happy dance on Memphis Metropolis when that happens. I realize it might not happen for a while because those things take a while. Thanks. But Thanks. I'm looking I'm looking forward to celebrating with you. Maybe the, probably the pandemic probably take long enough that the pandemic will be over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me as always. And the topic this week is how home repairs can help seniors stay in their homes longer. And the first half of the show, I had Chris Reeder, who is in program evaluation at Habitat for Humanity, who talked about, we talked about the issue generally, and we also talked about Habitat's specific aging in place program, which they've been operating for some time. So Austin, I know you know Chris, and I know you are familiar with Habitat and the program. But I think you and I wanted to go off in some on some tangents. But before that, um, just reflect a little bit about what when you listened to the interview, what you learned from it, or what impressed you about it. Yeah, I mean, a lot. First and foremost, I think it was a very, very um, informative uh, interview, and a, and a very um, yeah, a lot to unpack and a lot of tangents we can go on, but. Uh, two two big things that stood out for me, um, and and sort of framing this in terms of how lucky you know um, Memphis is to have a, a habitat chapter. You know, one of their 
uh, at the national international level, you know, one of their critiques is sort of the, the million beams of light, you know, house on this block, a house on that block. So how lucky we are that the Memphis chapter has taken this. And I think more habitats are doing this nationally, but they're taking this sort of neighborhood level approach, thinking about how uh, if you concentrate these programs, whether it's aging in place, whether it's, you know, new construction, um, repairing abandoned buildings, if you concentrate them in specific neighborhoods, uh, as they've done in Uptown and North Memphis and Frazier and other places, then you can begin to see um, sort of this, you know, this more uh, neighborhood wide impact. And it has those spillover effects, just like the negative things, as Chris mentioned, you know, just, just like the, um, the, the abandoned building having those spillover impacts. The, the good stuff that you know, Habitat is doing in those communities also has those spillover effects. And so I think that's that was one big thing. And then the second big thing is, and this is more just for nonprofits in general, but I think it really um, reminded me uh, how a, a common best practice that tends to get overlooked by nonprofits who are you know so busy doing the work. And a lot of times you'll have a program manager or a project manager who's running the project that will also have to be, you know, doing research and evaluation work, maybe around grant reporting periods or once a year, once a quarter, and how how important and and how innovative of an idea it is to have a full time research and evaluation person like Chris who can spend time with with the construction group, can spend time with the the clients and folks in the AIP program, can can become knowledgeable about what the organization is doing, but can also make a really strong case for for the impact you can tell the type of detailed very specific you know she had evidence after evidence after evidence on on the impact that habitat has had in this one specific program and i think nonprofits are doing so much great work and and we could talk a lot about you know how the the funding for for a position like that may be hard to come by but but i think that the end result is having that research and evaluation person allows those nonprofits to take control of the narrative and tell a really robust story about um, the neighborhood citywide, you know, thousand plus homes, you know, thousand plus people, that's, that's a huge impact. And they can speak to that with a lot of specificity and, and detail. And I think that's, that's something that can be hard to do when you're doing sort of social change, community change work, because it's so gray, it's so, you know, hard to wrap your arms around sometimes. I think that makes it a lot easier. And it's something that um, I, I think more nonprofits, I hope we'll begin to see in this sort of trend of, you know, data being, you know, a big, big topic in philanthropic circles. I hope this is something that becomes more normalized in the Memphis nonprofit sector, because I think this interview just reminded me of, wow, how, how amazing of a story Habitat's able to tell and how awesome it is to have someone there doing that research and do that work full time. So Austin, we talked a little bit before, you know, we got on the, we started recording the interview about, you know, the power of staying in place. And Chris and I talked a little bit about this. Um, you know, the reasons why, I mean, the seniors want to stay in place. I think a lot of times because, you know, they want to stay in their home. They don't want to go somewhere new. And, um, but there's a lot of other reasons why it's, you know, important from a neighborhood perspective. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, 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 definitely. I I think this in a lot of what I will say, I think will could be generalized to, you know, residents and, and householders in general, regardless of age. I think, you know, the you guys talked about this in depth, but the, the senior community in Memphis is a particularly vulnerable community to displacement and to moving, um, not just, you know, the alternative being a, uh, you know, a facility, uh, you know, a, 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 a senior care facility, but also the alternative being, you know, not being able to stay in that neighborhood or in that, in that home. When we look at impacts of, you know, you and I have discussed on past shows how quick home 
prices are rising and you think about impacts of, of displacement and gentrification pressures, you know, those tend to hit um, seniors because of their fixed income and because, you know, if they're just getting that thousand dollars a month. Right. And so, but I think more broadly, right, the power of staying in place, it's, it, it hits on a number of levels. I think on the most direct level, right, there's a sense of familiarity, you know, where to get um, your, the medication, you know, where, you know, you know, the, the route, you have probably a, a well-planned route to, uh, to healthcare, to, to, you know, you have, you know, where the, the food is, you know, you know, you're, you're in a location, especially in, as Memphis grows to be in, in 3.0 and grows to be more dense and, and centered around the urban core keeping um, seniors in place in neighborhoods around downtown areas that are starting to see pretty high appreciation, I think is an even bigger thing. Cause then you're really close to the medical district. You're really close to, um, to, to jobs, right? Thinking about, you know, the multi-generational impact, I'm sure we'll dig more into that, but the multi-generational impact that you guys mentioned of, you know, of the grandchildren of the seniors that are able to stay in place, right? A lot of times um, in many families, as we're having to depend more on our families for, for these social, um, you know, these social access and, and having um, sort of our social infrastructure is our family, right? Uh, then I think the, the grandparent and the elders of that family are kind of the, the bedrock. And so um, if you're able to keep seniors in place, that means that, you know, everyone in the family is able to, to, to stay in that neighborhood. And, and then you have, you know, familial networks and, and neighborhood networks that, um, that, you know, problem solve together in, in a community. We've seen that a lot. Um, even in, you know, working class, low income communities, you have this sort of this, you know, neighborhood efficacy, right? Like the ability to stay together. And so, and then you think about the mental health impacts. Um, there've been studies that have showed, you know, things like eviction, things like, uh, foreclosure, you know, having those impacts on, on mental health. And, and even if that's happening a lot around you, right? Like your own mental and emotional stability. So, well, elaborate on that a little bit, because I think you told me that you were working on a research paper about the connection between uh, mental health and black methanes. And I know that's not specific to seniors, but, um, but let's talk about it for a minute anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So we're, we're wrapping up a project um, that looked at uh, looked at eviction specifically and looked at areas with higher eviction rates and compared that to mental health indicators. Uh, and what we saw is we separated the analysis out by the racial demographic of the neighborhood. And we found in predominantly black neighborhoods uh, that we, as we already know, are more likely to have higher rates of eviction, um, that there were noticeable, you know, statistically significant mental health impacts that were associated in those same areas. So areas that are seen um, the inability to stay in place and an inability to um, to have that you know power of place we talk about uh, that not only has you know economic social impacts but there are clear health mental health you know one of the uh, you know deep deep foundational to our our overall health and overall stability as, as humans and it has those impacts in at the neighborhood level and so this isn't even looking at an individual that has um, that has experienced that. But this is looking, again, taking that sort of neighborhood-specific approach and saying that in neighborhoods where people don't have the ability to stay in place, they don't, maybe there's not an aging in place program that, that is you know, keeping, um, keeping those householders in, in their homes. It, it has impacts on everyone, right? Anybody in the community just seeing the, the stability, seeing the eviction, seeing the, the couch and, and, and the armoire and the furniture on the lawn, right? What that does to 
um, to our own sense of, of peace and stability. I think especially. Well, I can, I can only imagine. I mean, you know, when I drive by a house, you know, where, you know, families belongings are on the sidewalk, you know, my heart flips over and because it's someone's life, someone's being put out of their house. Where are they going to be staying? I can only imagine if that was, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to live, you know, in an area where you're not seeing that all the time, but I can only, that's just one example that you mentioned. I can only imagine that, um, that seeing that kind of thing every day just lends in, lends a sense of instability and depression to to your mental health I totally it's a it's an interesting subject to to talk about and we could do a show on it if you think there's enough there to to tease out once you once the article gets published but I'm interested in it because I totally see yeah, that there would yeah. be a connection there but but I think it speaks to it speaks to the, the positive impacts you know of an aging in place uh, and again, you know, taking that neighborhood approach, not to not to harp on it too much, but I think it speaks to why that is also a really good idea and why having that neighborhood level impacts in areas that, you know, are more likely to experience that instability um, is, is, yeah, is really big for the city. I mean, it's a big win for us. Well, I think you mentioned the, you know, the f- familial networks or the multi-generational because I do think that that a lot of seniors who haven't had a serving have family members. They may have, you know, their daughter and grand and multiple grandchildren. Chris told the story of one lady whose high school uh, age grandchild was in the home and was being negatively impacted by the condition of the house. And, you know, the repairs led her to feel better about everything. And she improved her grades, all the things you want to hear, but, but that's got to be, I mean, for a couple of reasons, I mean, the, and I want to talk about the whole equity piece in a minute, but the the grandparent could be the only person that owns the house. And, but also the grandparent is, might be able to age in place because they've got family members who are taking care of them. Yep. Yep. So, so that it's not just the, it's not just the senior has a ripple effect over the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, taking a step back and just thinking about, you know, right now, this is, a, this is something that's been talked about a lot because, you know, our current administration, presidential administration is attempting to uh, invest more in social infrastructure and, and the social safety net. But the reality is for the last 40, 50 years, we've slowly but surely disinvested in that social safety net. And so what, what has happened is the family has had to become that safety net, right? If, if, if rock bottom happens for, for anyone, right, you're, you're going to have to depend on, you know, you see families doubling up and multi-generational households and, and you're having sort of the family have to become that, um, that safety net for, for, for everyone there, you know? And, and, and so I think the, the flip side of that in this case, right, is that what that means is, you know, having, again, sort of the foundational member, the bedrock of that safety net, be able to to have a stable um, living situation and a, and a good, you know, a, a, a improved living situation, right? That that improves the safety net for the whole family. And so the spillover effects, when you look at, again, you know, from, from a neighborhood standpoint, even thinking about um, certain recent, recent studies have showed, uh, thinking about another aspect, the spillover effect, um, is, is the, the crime, you know, crime's another hot topic that people are talking about and we're looking for alternative solutions to it. 
And a study that was done out of the University of Pennsylvania in Philly found that uh, low-income housing repair programs, very similar to Habitat's Agent in Place, uh, in, in neighborhoods where that was occurring, saw decreased criminal activity and, uh, and less perception of crime as well. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily think those two things would go together. You wouldn't think of that as necessarily. Um, but but that's actually very interesting. And of course, it doesn't surprise me. Chris and I talked about the, um, and of course, Steve Blackwood and Frazier did a lot of work on this, examining the, um, you know, the cost of real estate values when homes are acquired and revitalized, you know, the connection between vacancy and poor property values is all kinds of ripple effects from home repair programs or just rehab. And um, this crime was also very interesting. So, okay. Okay. So last question, Austin. Um, I mean, we've talked a little, we've talked quite a bit, you and I on the show about, you know, the the scourge of out-of-town investors coming into Memphis, not just Memphis, American cities in general, purchasing purchasing large numbers of rental housing. And and certainly when Chris and I talked about, you know, if people couldn't stay in place, those homes would probably not go go to another local owner or renter. I mean, they'd probably go out of local ownership. And then you raise the issue, which is related sort of and framed as sort of as equity theft. Um, and so just talk about that a little bit about if, a, you know, if a senior can't stay in their home because it's in poor condition, they can't afford to pick it up, they've got to sell it. What does that look like? And what are the, you know, what's the going to be the bottom line most likely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, a lot to unpack here. So, so I think the first thing, you know, and you guys did a great job of touching on this in the interview, but if you put yourself in the shoes, you know, a thousand bucks a month, you're, you know, you're trying to make ends meet, maybe you're the, the primary caregiver, caretaker of the family. Um, and someone from out of town, you know, rings you up from California and says, we'll buy your house right now, all cash for thirty, forty thousand dollars um, Even if it may be worth hundred, hundred twenty, hundred thirty. That thirty, forty thousand dollars right then, all cash is going to be very enticing. And so, I think the reality is these um, these all cash buyers. You know, you're seeing that trend increase nationally right now as as the supply um, is still pretty limited from the pandemic. Uh, you know, it, it, it creates, and you know, I've discussed this before, it makes it harder for other home buyers to to compete in that reality. But but what that means is, you know, they're they're specifically targeting and looking at uh, folks on fixed income where. The, a reduced price um, will uh, will be more advantageous and more appealing, and so I think the upshot for uh, the neighborhood is that that essentially is they're not realizing the full value and full wealth and equity that they've built up in those homes as prices are going up. Especially, um, you know, then doing some work in Orange Mound, we've been seeing that homes that were worth fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, you know, twenty four months ago are now going for eighty, ninety thousand. And that is, you know, when we talk about the wealth gap and how the racial wealth gap and how it's it's widened, you know, that's what that's how this kind of term of equity theft, if these out of town investors are taking that equity that that homeowner, if they've been in that house for a long time and they've been in that neighborhood for a long time, they put in the time and the effort and and they and they, you know, put in the the, the sweat equity and, and the and the real investment into that property, um, regardless of their background, economic background, they they're owed that value. Right. And I think there's a really great book written by uh, Dr. Andre Perry 
out of the Brookings Institute called Know Your Price, where he talks about the devaluation of black property, black owned property in particular, um, by the appraisal, you know, community. And I think that's that's a big thing that Agent in Place also is is helping disrupt is this trend of of these out of town investors, you know, targeting communities. Memphis Flyer did a really good story on it in Frazier, um, I think last year, you know, what what's up with all these we buy homes things, right? Like that's sort of what's behind it. And so I think if you're able um, to make those repairs and you're able to encourage a homeowner to, to stay there, then it's much easier to hang up the phone on that $30,000, $40,000 if now you're able to feel like you're in a hundred, $120,000 home. Did you see that article? It's just this week in the Washington Post about that couple. So it was an, a black couple in the Washington area and they w- were wanting to get multiple appraisals on their house. Mm-hmm. So they got an appraisal. I think it was, you know, a million two or something like that. And then they got another appraisal and it was, it was like 600,000 and they, so they uh, got another appraisal from the same company, but they had a white person, a friend come into their house when they were there and took down all the family pictures. Um, And anyway, the appraisal came in at, close to the first one. And so they're suing the appraisal company for yeah. racial discimination. Yeah. Yeah. And huge issue. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, that's, that, that, that's an affluent couple, yeah. but certainly as, as you're saying that plays out. And, um, and as it's done in, in Shelby County, right. And a lot of other counties that they have to appraise hundreds of thousands of homes, they're starting to automate that. So that racial bias is, is sort of getting institutionalized within the automation. And so you see your, your tax bill, you know, continue to, um, to be off, you know, from a, from an appraisal and, and that impacts the bank's appraisals. And, and so, and so I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, again, the, the kind of implications and spillovers from that. Uh, and I think it, it, you know, it ultimately only is going to widen the, the racial wealth gap, which is at a 30 year high right now, you know, as we speak. So. Oof. Well, on that note, we're, we're out of time. So lots there we could continue talking about. I, I, I think the good, note to end on, the good note to end on is that Agent in Place is disrupting all of those realities <laughs> and they are doing the work and they have, and the impact is speaking for itself. Chris has done a great job of tracking that. And so I think that's a good thing to know is all those things are happening, but Habitat is working to scale up and take neighborhood level approaches in this program. And the results are speaking for itself. Thank you for, <laughs> for tying that up into a bow that I can, that I'm happy with. So, okay. I've been talking to Austin Harrison, who's a visiting professor at Rhodes College, one of our regular commentators, even listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. So thanks so much, Austin. Thank you for having me as always. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.